What we're going to do is we have a special guest today, Richard Mangoni, who has an amazing story to tell about how God has worked in his life, taking him from darkness and the worldliness and the vanity of uh, money and uh, prestige and so on, and taking him to a new level of understanding. But there's a journey behind that, a painful journey that ends in restoration and in blessing. So we're going to be speaking together about this journey, and I know that God is going to bless you this morning. So I want us to give a big hand of welcome to Richard Mangoni, and I'm going to invite him to come up with me. And you see that he has a, uh, a very interesting attire that he will tell us about, because it, it, um, it speaks about his journey, really, and about what he represents um, as a man who embodies God's grace. Uh, and there are two sides to his uh, story and to his life. Let me just make sure that we have the mic on here. Yes. And um, we, we want to welcome him this morning. Richard, thank you so much for coming and, and uh, deciding to be with us. We've been looking forward to spending time with you. Thank you, Pastor. It's a blessing to be here. Good morning, everyone. Well, you know, let's start with uh, your suit and what it means. Why you choose that as a as an example of your life, and what, it, what, what does it really embody? Tell us it's, about the uh, symbolism behind it. Initially, it uh, was a uh, coming out party on our book signing. Um, my wife saw the cover of the book that was designed uh, by an illustrator, and she said, wow, wouldn't it be interesting to make an outfit of that? And so Rosanna, my wife, ended up uh, designing it and sewing it. And as she was preparing this, the Lord spoke to my heart and he brought to me Galatians 5:16 through 18, when it talks about the fact of walking in the spirit and not in the flesh, and do not, you know, give into the uh, into the flesh. And the battle is between the flesh and the spirit. And I see the good side here, the the banker side, and then I see the evil side, the side that I I chose as an early life to be able to follow after the flesh, and the disaster that happens with that. And you, you're the author of a book, and that's how I first uh, became acquainted with you. The, the book is entitled Busted, A Banker's Run to Prison. And in, in that book, you chronicle the story of your life uh, from huge, really significant financial success. At some point, you could have been considered a millionaire. You were a millionaire. Um, from that point of uh, height of social standing to being uh, in prison and receiving the longest uh, sentence at that time in Massachusetts for financial uh, crimes uh, committed. So this is, this is the essence of your story. And yes, exactly. we're going to unpack that a little bit. So um, tell us about your life um, before you initiate this journey. Where, where are you from? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, tell me a little bit about your family, your home situation, mm -hmm. how, where you grew up mm -hmm. and so on. Well, I grew up in humble beginnings in the East Boston housing projects. My mother had moved us after my dad died. I was about eight years old and uh, graduated from uh, Boston English High School, so I'm a local boy, and uh, spent uh, you know, many years in the city. And when you're growing up as a young child, you have a lot of impressions of things that happen. I uh, never really realized I was poor until I was in my early teenage years. Um, then going to Boston English on the train, you get to meet influences from different parts of the city where you begin to realize that you are of a poverty level. And I began at a very early age to worship money. Greed and money seemed to be on the throne of my heart. And I guess that was partly because of your own poverty. I mean, it, it sort of 
prepared you to have that desire to make money and to make good and to acquire prestige and so on and overcome exactly. poverty. Yes, that's exactly right. And, and what had happened was I went into the military and a Vietnam vet and spent time over there. And there it were life and death situations every day. And I began to realize there was something going on within me, but I didn't know at that time the Lord was pulling me towards him. I still was trying to fulfill the desires of becoming wealthy. Um, after, you know, come back from Vietnam, I went to uh, college through the GI Bill, bought my first house through the, uh, through the government, and the government was very supportive of me going to college and majored in accounting and began to, uh, you know, accumulate uh, massed amounts of wealth. Um, at one point in time, my partners and I had our own plane. I had a Ferrari, a Porsche, Mercedes. Just, it was just toy after toy and I was trying to fill the void that should be filled by God and the Holy Spirit that I know now, but I was filling it with material things. And what was the mechanism that provided for all of that wealth? What was your profession, and what did you do as a yeah, professional Yeah, I, I worked as a young man as a CPA in a CPA firm, uh, you know, the certified public accountants, and that gave me the ability to go off and to look for new, new ventures, of which I was hired by Polaroid Corporation back in the day in Cambridge, and they hired me as controller of the credit union. Uh, from there, I worked my way into Digital Equipment Corporation. In, Which one? Uh, the digital? Uh, yes, uh, DCU, Digital Equipment Corporation's credit union. Which it's is well in, known. I mean, the, that yes. company was huge. Yeah, it's, it's very large. And uh, digital at the time was the 55th largest company in the world. It was very, very significant. We had branches in Puerto Rico and in Toronto, United States, and very successful. Um, but I, I, after I had got that job, and fulfilled what I needed to fulfill to open up all the various offices, I had an earning to want to desire to make more money. So I started investing heavily in the stock market, which I made millions. And, and from there, I was looking for any venture that I could possibly get my hands on. The excitement of the chase, as, as they will. And, and a lot of successful uh, people do that. But in my case, I went overboard and we started doing things that were in darkness rather than light. Yeah, let's stop there for a moment and unpack that a little bit about that lust for, you said the excitement of the chase. So it wasn't necessarily simply that you needed money uh, for your needs. It was simply, you know, like that money acquired a kind of a life of its own. And you who have been there, um, do you think that that's just for people who have a lot of money or are there other ways of uh, falling into that kind of trap of material lust and all that kind of stuff. I think all of us are susceptible to falling into that mm. at various levels. Mm. Um, I saw myself falling, but yet enjoying the fall. Um, it's, it's interesting, sin, as it talks about in the Bible, sin has its pleasure for a season, they talk about. But yet, when you see the ugliness of it, and the lying, and the cheating, and the scamming, you begin to realize it's something that you don't want to be part of, but you're caught in that trap. And, and it's, a very, it's a very scary thing when you look back at it. At the time, I didn't realize it. Um, it's like uh, drug addicts that I had met in prison to talk about chasing the dragon, meaning that first time that they get high, they get that euphoric high where they feel the second or third time they're going to achieve that same thing. In the world that I was living in, I would get high of making several hundred thousand dollars on a transaction, but it would go away. Then I'm looking for the next high. And it's, it's sad, but there's such a vacancy in our heart that we try to fill it with things that hurt us rather than help us. You know, psychologists say that uh, when, you're, when you expose yourself to a certain stimulus, whatever it might be, 
I mean, your body after a while gets used to it, and then you need more, a stronger dosage of that stimulus in order to feel the same thing that you experienced in the first time. So as your body and your mind get used to a certain pleasure, you need more massive amounts of mm. that same uh, stimulus in order to experience the same kind of satisfaction. I think that happens with uh, money, it happens with uh, lust, it happens with the prestige. Um, you just caught, as you say, in this trap. You become an addict. Your brain, I mean, is uh, pretty much processing the same kind of thing. It's not a drug, but it is the vanity of life and so on and so forth, the prestige. You just can't get enough of it. You want more. And the more you have, the more you need. Amen. Yeah. And the thing is that only by God's grace, I didn't do drugs or anything else that many people do. I chose, in my heart, to chase after wealth. Mm. And, and it, it is vain and it is empty. And, and it's such a terrible thing to have the throne of your heart filled with such uh, evil. Uh, and and we, at the time, we didn't realize that. Um, being, not being a Christian, um, I thought gray was okay. You know, now I know there's gray. only white and black. Gray is in yeah. between mm -hmm. that you can make a conscious decision. No, we're not hurting anybody. Let's borrow the money. Um, but yet, um, it's unethical. That's the slippery slope that you found yourself in. I Without mean, going question. Going from one thing to another until you lost your way. Amen. Exactly. Yeah. And, and that's what ended up happening. We started, you know, once I ended up opening up a credit union on the Cape, uh, we began to, uh, you know, bring in new board members and new partners. And that's when just Katie barred the doors, the barn doors were open, and all the horses were flying out, and everybody was getting involved in, in different various loans. And that credit union was started by the digital corporation, is that correct? Uh, the, I, I started. I was the okay. original founder. All right. And just same as with, uh, I was the founder of uh, Digital Equipment Corporation's credit union as its president mm -hmm. and chief executive officer. And one of those corporations, as I understand, is still in existence, of course, not with your... Uh, uh, directorship, but it's part, one, of the, one of the biggest uh, credit yes. unions in, in the world. It's very successful, mm -hmm. and I'm very thankful that the Lord saved it even through my misdeeds. Yeah. We certainly can end up leaving a lot of rubble behind us in looking back in the people that we ended up touching in such a bad way that I'm very happy that they're doing well. So what happens at that point? You start uh, making all kinds of um, illicit transactions with the money. You start using that money from the, corporate, from the uh, credit union in, a, in an illegal sort of way for your own enrichment and the enrichment of all your other partners. Tell me how that worked. Yes. They, what, we, what we ended up doing was we, we borrowed money, um, as anyone would go in to borrow money for a home or for land, and, and what we didn't disclose were our personal interests. It's illegal for a, a federal officer of a, of a credit union or a bank to borrow money without disclosing their interests. In Massachusetts, you can do that through real estate trust. You can end up hiding who the beneficiaries are by having a trustee appointed. And so we sheltered our ownership, and the only people that knew it were the internal revenue when you filed your taxes at the end of the year. But uh, it went on for many, many years. And uh, in my point, I wasn't accumulating wealth from these transactions. I was using the write-offs against the millions I was making in the stock market. And it's still wrong. Um, it was something that was evil, but once we got into it, it became a Ponzi scheme because the real estate uh, interest rates went very high and the government changed some tax reform act that ended up having a significant impact on our business. And once that happened, things started falling apart. Yeah, and of course, I think what happens is that you get entangled in this uh, whole scheme, this Ponzi scheme, if you will, and it's very hard to get out of it. I mean, at some point, I mean, you're obligated, even if you wanted to get out 
you couldn't get out without paying a huge price of disclosing what you have been doing and so on and so forth. Exactly. So you're you're yeah. trapped at some the, point the, and you can't the, go back. Exactly. The embarrassment is, is huge, mm -hmm. um, absolutely huge. And, and even though we tried hard to get out of it, we couldn't. We oh. were just, we were entrapped. Yeah. Uh, and we, we hid, we just couldn't do, do, do what was necessary. But you also caused a lot of uh, financial ruin, I mean, for people. And, and, and you, you're very honest in your book. One of the things that impresses me about your book is how straightforward you are and how open you are in acknowledging of your sin and uh, all the atrocities that uh, were committed. And that, that moved me a lot and that, that really is a tribute to your honesty. But I mean, a lot of people, because you also did real estate transactions and all kinds of other things. And, I, I think that people lost houses or yes, they, yep. they were ruined financially yes. because this was a big, big operation. Yeah, it's, it's the people that ended up buying homes through the credit union ended up having to go out after the credit union got defunct, the one on the Cape, and they had to go out and try to refinance with other banks, and it was very difficult for them. So, so many lives were touched by that. What years are we talking about here? Uh, we're talking 84 to uh, 91. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. And... Um, all right, tell me a little bit about your religious life. I mean, um, you know, sometimes you wonder, you know, Amen. You, you were not evil. You weren't trying to do evil. Uh, uh, you knew that you were doing things that were wrong. Um, but uh, it seems to me as I read your book that you didn't have the appropriate uh, checks on your mind and on your, your uh, conscience as you were doing this thing. So I'm, I'm just wondering, what, where were you uh, spiritually, religiously? What was your formation I mean, do you think that if you would have had a different kind of uh, religious uh, upbringing or more stronger uh, spiritual life, maybe those things would have helped to prevent you from doing that? Tell me a little bit about that. that that's a good, good question. I, I was raised as a Catholic, and um, my mother was a very godly woman, yet each person decides for themselves the direction that they want to go. Um, Raised as a Catholic, going to, going to church, I really never knew who Jesus was until my moment of reconciliation while I was on the run. Um, up until that point, I heard about who he was, but I never really knew who he, he was. Um, and as a Catholic, I never read the Bible. You didn't have a up. personal relationship? With no, you. none at all. Not, nothing. Uh, just uh, names and names only. Um, you know, I, I could say that, yes, I was raised a Catholic, but there really was nothing behind that. I really didn't know what it meant to be a Catholic. So all of a sudden, that house of cards starts falling apart. I mean, the government discovers that some things are going on that shouldn't be, and uh, an investigation results, and uh, what happens there? How, the, how does that whole thing come apart? The, uh, several of the people they were loaning money to did not want to pay it back, so we hired attorneys to try to get them to pay back. And meanwhile, they knew they were, that we were doing things that were wrong, so they blew the whistle on us. And I'm thankful they did because who knows what could have happened if this thing continued on even longer. Uh, the House of Cards needed to, to come down. And, and the government uh, came in. They ended up uh, you know, asking me to leave my job during the investigation. At that point in time, of course, I knew I never was going to go back to that job. Um, looking back at it, I had probably one of the best jobs in America. I mean, it's a wonderful thing being a president CEO that your word is just as if uh, Moses spoke. It is golden, exactly. And uh, it's, it's amazing the lives that you can help and hinder, you know, through all of that, uh, through all of that wealth. And um, I look back at it with a somber thought that it could have been a lot better if I, if I, didn't, if I didn't have my heart in the wrong place. 
I, I can only imagine the, the pain, the panic, uh, the, the fear that you must have felt in that time when things are kind of unfolding and, and uh, breaking down. And, uh, you know, I can only, uh, you know, aspire to have a sense of all that you must have been going through. Tell me, how, how did you feel? What was your, what was your emotional state like in your family? And so mm. Well, the, I mean, my emotional state was, was very bad at that time because uh, several months before I got indicted, my son Douglas, who was 21 years old, um, going, at that time going to college, was coming home from a friend's house only a mile away, and he, his car hit some black ice, hit a tree, and he died. So uh, that was in January, on January 1st. And a couple of months later, I was, I was indicted. Um, it was a very difficult time for our whole family, um, especially, you know, my wife and I, because of, you know, being so close and, and having an opportunity to grow up such a beautiful son and losing him just in a matter of a flash. It really, really was very difficult. I can, I can mm. imagine how you must have felt. And so um, you, some of your associates were also indicted. Yes. They uh, had been uh, tried and your time is coming up, and what happens? How do you react at that point? I, I, it's, one, it's an important part mm -hmm. of the, that journey. What happened it is, when... there, was, there was 12 people actually in, in, indicted. Uh, most of us went to prison. Uh, a couple of them may have just got some you know, time at home under a bracelet, but it was a very difficult time in my life. I was embarrassed, you know, my family, my friends. Um, when, when darkness is exposed to light, it's just incredible how Everybody runs for cover. Uh, many of my friends and even some of my family members abandoned me at that point in time because they, they were concerned about being tainted by what I had done. And I understand that. Uh, it took a while for the Lord to show me that while I was away. But uh, I had a purpose to, uh, to run. Um, I felt that uh, I couldn't do 24 years in prison and I would be getting out in my, in my 70s, which I thought was rather significant. It was a draconian sentence at best. And uh, I felt that it made sense for me to try to run away. Very childish thoughts, very selfish thoughts, but yet this is what we try to do. We try to flee from, from taking our own medicine that we need to take. Yeah, and I guess understandable in the light of the panic that you felt, uh, the fear. I mean, the, it was a downfall that was so huge that uh, you probably weren't in your right mind. You're, you're thinking about how can I survive prison, you know, for all these years and so on. And, you know, even though, of course, now in hindsight, you say that was a stupid thing to do. Amen. But it, it is understandable how mm. you went through, you could have thought of that. Yeah. So now you're running from the law. I mean, <clears throat> that's, that's an interesting part of the book, how you end up um, <clears throat> spending months on the run yes. and all the stuff that you had to go through. Mm. But then, <clears throat> during that time, as you con considered suicide, because that's a touching moment there, yes. where you, you, know, you prepared that, mm -hmm. and then something happened that changed. But walk us through that whole thing of thinking of suicide, mm -hmm. and then the Lord intervenes mm -hmm. in a miraculous sort of way in your journey. Even before I became a Christian, the Lord had blessed me with management talents. And I had always surrounded myself with people that were smarter than me, but I was able to take what information they gave me and disseminate it and to make a proper decision. While I was on the run, I had some money that I had taken with me. And I was always good in the stock market. But once I lost some of the larger banks and some of the investors that I would normally call for advice, they weren't there because I'm on the run. And, and the FBI is looking for me you know, very seriously and so on the US Marshals. You know, home phones, I'm sure, were bugged. I never called home, but I'm sure that they watched out for us. And after I had lost 
the monies that I had uh, taken with me, it was about $130,000 I lost in the stock market. After I had lost that, I was at my wit's end. And at that point in time, I really thought the best thing to do is to take my life and, and end it at that point. So, you know, I had a, I had a rental, rental vehicle, and I piped the uh, back of the exhaust into the uh, rear of the vehicle, and I uh, was going to drink a, a bottle of wine in the morning, tape my Massachusetts driver's license on the side of the window, and, you know, fall asleep in a very gentle way. And when the owner of the rental home that I had uh, found me, they, they would realize that, you know, I was, I was on the run. In, in, the, in the night before, um, I'm numb in front of the TV set, just hitting, hitting the changer, going from TV program to TV program. And all of a sudden, I came across uh, a pro project that is called the Jesus Project. It was the story of uh, Jesus, and he was hanging on the cross at the point that I ended up entering into the story. And it's from the book of Luke. And the Lord Jesus Christ was hanging on the cross. And as he was, you know, crying out to the Father, there was a, uh, a minister who had put his hands um, on the TV and the camera zoomed in on both hands. And you could see both hands on the TV. And he said, mash my hands, mash your hands to mine, that if you really are in such desperate shape, depression, and other things that we have in our own bodies, end up receiving the Lord Jesus Christ. And I did that. Um, I ended up, you know, saying a, a prayer that, uh, that he had uh, uttered. And uh, after I uh, got off the phone, I ended up, um, you know, calling a toll-free number that was on the bottom of the, of the screen. And I asked the uh, young person that answered the phone, I said, if a Christian, I felt that at that point in time I was a Christian because I had received Christ, if, if, if a Christian ends up committing suicide, would he go to heaven or would he go to hell? And, and the young woman on the other end of the line said, gee whiz, I'm awful sorry that uh, this line is only for raising money. And so Lord I, was, I was there, you know. They did one good thing and then did the whole amen, thing with the other. Amen. <laughs> um, <laughs> Thank you for your honesty about it. Amen. Yeah. And it, 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 was, it was amazing that uh, I, I didn't know where to turn. Fortunately, I was hiding in the oh, Bible belt. Giver. <laughs> and uh, it, there's enough stores that sell Bibles and uh, all the various tapes that I ran to a store the next morning, took the stuff off the car, and then, they, then go out and start searching for who this Jesus was that I had just wow. received. And that, that just reminds me of how important it is to share the gospel in all kinds of ways. You know, sometimes people make fun of... Um, televangelists and other programs on television. And I know there's a lot of corruption as even there in that whole thing, that moment when you called and they, mm. you know, but sometimes God uses these means Amen. to, uh, Amen. there you are now. Yeah, he exactly. saved the man and, and transformed by Jesus Christ. But it began in that kind of in a spacious sort of way, but um, the Lord did his work and you see the grace of God. And I'm sure, Amen. <clears throat> tell me a little bit about just the, how you see the providence and the, the presence of God in your life, even through those dark times and how you see God working. He had a plan for you, evidently. There's and no question. nothing happened out of uh, mm. coincidence. This was no. all part of a journey that God was taking you through to bring you to saving knowledge of Christ. Many, many of the Lord's disciples were fishermen. And I always felt that the Lord had me on a string and there was a hook in my mouth and I would squirm and try to get off that hook. Uh, looking back at it, I, I, I really did a, a good job in fighting. Uh, and I fought the Lord for a long way. Um, you know, serving the evil one and not realizing that the Lord was reeling me and gently reeling me in. And he brought me through so much. It's just amazing. But yet, 
you don't realize it until you look back and see his hands upon your life. And uh, that moment of reckoning in, in the moment of suicide became an illuminating fact to me. So that's why I went out and got the Bible, got tapes, listening to them in the vehicle that I had. It took me several months of digesting God's word and reading it to be able to get the courage to turn myself into the authorities. And, and it was amazing that uh, like he gave me that strength to do that. Yeah. So you see that there is a, that moment was like a before and after as you yes. accepted Christ, as you let him enter into your life, that initiated a journey. And it was a gradual journey. You didn't go overnight the next day and um, hand yourself in. I mean, no. there, there was a time of struggle and of, uh, but God was working through all of that and finally Amen. brought you to a solution. Exactly. Well, how, how do you feel about this God, I mean, who works through tragedy, through sin, even through failure. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I think people, all of us here, one way or another, can identify in some way or another with a time when we felt, you know, yeah, my life makes no sense. I mean, there's no way out. Uh, God doesn't love me. I've done too much to offend him. And yet he's there at every stage of the way, working somehow graciously to bring you. So what, what hope is there for somebody at that stage, that, that uh, Richard, who was in that desperation, uh, but was God there as well? Yes, I, I, can, I, can say, I can say this unequivocally that um, the sky's the limit. When you come to begin to realize who Jesus Christ is in, in being indwelt by the Spirit of God, you have such a great thirst and desire to want to know him more. It'd be like you know, meeting, meeting your girlfriend or your boyfriend for the first time. And you're so excited. You get home, you call them up, you want to talk to them day and you want to talk to them at night, meet them for coffee and just enjoy their presence. And that's exactly what the Holy Spirit and God did to me. I had to know more and more. I had, I had a million and one questions. I mean, simple questions. How do the animals get to the ark? I mean, I just, I just was full of questions. And, and I'm thankful there were a lot of people around me that helped me through that time. Uh, but he was there at every step. And he answered everything that I had a question about. I'm impressed by your love of the word always, even during your time of incarceration. What importance do you ascribe to knowing the word of God, knowing what, uh, what you believe in, studying the word and so on? Because that was a, a formative aspect of your life, I mean, throughout your entire time of incarceration. I like to use the example. kind of advice for us here as Amen. well? Amen. I, like I like to use the example of my mom when I was growing up would say, you are what you eat. And then I had a college professor years ago that would say, you are what you read. And it's interesting when Jesus uh, met the uh, Samaritan woman at the well and, and the disciples was asking questions one another, you know, what, what is he eating? And of course, he was eating God's word. And the more you come to realize who God is, the more you want to know him and the more you want to study about him. So I spent many, many, many hours every day while I was incarcerated studying God's Word. Um, that's all I did. I did nothing else. No TV, no newspapers, nothing. No books. Only the Bible. And, and I spent it with God in a private setting as if I was in a monastery. How many years were you in? Uh, I was incarcerated for 18 years. 18 years. Yes. Oh. And uh, on the weekends, I would do nothing but, you know, take Bible studies um, and end up devouring God's word. Uh, I, my memory is not all that good, but yet he gave me the ability to memorize over 2,000 scriptures. And, and I'm thankful that he put that word in my heart because it comes in handy 
when I'm in the dentist chair getting drilled. Um, I can quote scripture and, and feel at peace. Uh, when I'm angry at home sometimes over things, frustrations that happen, I can quote scripture and allow my heart to get back to where it belongs in serving God. And it's very important for us to do that. Yeah, you go through a lot of um, experiences. Amen. You can clap. Yeah. You go through a lot of experiences in, in prison that you, you relate in your book um, regarding, you know, how, the, the, how complex that whole system is and how it works and so on. But you seem to have made the best out of that. I mean, well, first of all, what do you think of the, you know, there's a lot of controversy these days about incarceration system and the penal system, which, of course, we know there's all kinds of atrocities and so on. It's a very mm -hmm. sinister kind of environment. And you survived that in a way. I mean, and you had your own scrapes with... Uh, some of the whole dynamics that take place among inmates and, uh, you know, the, the, the administrative system and so on. Uh, it's, a, it's a very imperfect system, uh, that's evident. But give me your own opinion on that. Uh, you know, does this system work? Uh, does it need to be radically changed? Uh, how, how do you see that? Because also you talk about all the uh, opportunities that there were as well for study, for self-improvement, and so on. But there were also some sinister, some injustices being committed. Uh, give me a, a, a I mean, synopsis you can, of you, that. You can look at it from a standpoint, there's approximately 12 to 1,300 men, you know, nestled within a couple of acres worth of land. Um, this is going to be your home for many, many years. Uh, we had men with over 600 years that they, they were going to have to serve, obviously. We know man doesn't live that long unless you're, you know, back in Adam's Cumulative era. Cumulative sentences. Exactly. And, and you, you meet all different types. But the, the federal government does a good job in managing their inmates. Um, they do a lot better than many of the states do because their budgeting is not re restricted as the states would be. So consequently, the men can end up settling in and you can have a, you can have a life in prison. Um, you've got to realize that you're alone. You're an island unto yourself. Um, but try to be around like-minded people. There are some strong Christians in prison. Uh, the chaplains will try to do as much as they possibly can to, to help you in that area. Um, so I spent most of my time either at work, because every, everyone's required to work, and uh, I had good jobs while I was in. They used my talents to the best of their ability by giving me clerk's jobs. I worked for the chaplain for a while, and also did uh, worked in the commissary. So I had good jobs while I was away, and they were responsible jobs. And you look back and you say, you know, it's amazing. But, you know, you were talking earlier about um, tithing. And uh, even in prison, uh, many of the men that uh, have re received the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior do tithe. So if they're making $20, they'll, they'll give to the ministry. Why don't you expand on that a little bit here? Um, <laughs> There's, there's a wonderful. Just kidding, uh, no, I will. There's a wonderful verse that uh, the Lord brought to my heart in, when King David in, in, uh, in Chronicles was talking. But who am I and who am my people that we, that we should be able to offer as generously as this? For all things come from you, and from your hand we have given you. And how awesome that is that King David, who, who had everything, and the people gave so abundantly, he had to ask him to stop. And Moses had the same experience in gathering the, the materials for the, you know, for the tabernacle. The people give in a generous heart. But I've noticed in my walk that those that are very spiritual will give and trust the Lord more. It's interesting. Yeah. And as a young believer, it's I had true. to learn it's that. always like yeah. that, yeah. yeah. It's, just, it's just amazing in how, how that works. And, and, and God 
works even in prison in those areas for us to teach us. And we would donate to pastors that would come into the prison, and we would also donate to prison ministries, those who are sending in Bible studies into the prison. And there's a lot of opportunities for, to study the Word of God in prison. And you talk about the fellowship that you had among uh, inmates and uh, the kind of support systems that were there from outside, people coming in. Yes visit and so yeah. on. We had some very godly men come into the prison, um, pastors and, and deacons from the local churches and several of the churches, uh, Baptist churches, uh, holiness churches, as well as Assembly of God came in on a weekly basis in such godly loving men. And each one taught us something different. One taught us how to love and to be friend friendly. One taught us the Bible and the idiosyncrasies of, of the Word of God and delving into it. And another one taught us uh, praise and worship. So each one had a contribution to my growth as a young believer. And it's just amazing how God blessed that congregation there. And it's interesting. Several of the men today that I know are serving the Lord. A couple of them are my cellies that they do prison ministry. One's up in Maine who goes into the prisons on Sunday after church and spends time you know, sharing the word of God in the pods up in Maine. And one's down in Texas who has a big ministry down in Texas. So it's amazing in how God will use those even incarcerated social rejects, and we were social rejects, in using us in a way that can further his kingdom's purposes. It's and amazing. Sometimes, and sometimes that can be the, the seminary right there in exactly. prison. You know, and and uh, that, that can be sometimes a place where God does the work that you then can put into practice later on in ministry and serving him Amen. Uh, later on. What is God doing at that time then in your brain? How is he renewing the neurons of your brain, your mentality? The, the man who was so vain, the man who was in love with money, the mm. man who wasn't thinking too much about what kind of harm he was doing to others, uh, whose appetite was just for one more fix uh, in terms of uh, you know, achievement. But then here you are now, you've lost everything. What is happening in your spirit and in your mind uh, for during, those, during, uh, during that, dec time, that decade plus? Amen. During that time, it was a very slow and gradual process. The more that I come to know who Christ Jesus is, growing the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, as the Apostle Peter talks about, the more that you study his word and it's infused in you, you begin to see how much latent things are wrong with you inside. Um, we had our meetings uh, at various uh, days during the week where the Christian brothers would come together. And several of them, at that point, I had been in prison about 14 years. And some of them asked, Brother Rich, are you ready to go home? And I said, no, I'm not. And they looked at me kind of bewildered, knowing that I was somewhat of an elder at the, at the church at that time. And I said, the Lord still has other things he's got to work out in me. And I still had some areas of covetousness that he needed to, to get rid of. And on my 15th year... Three years before I got out, the Lord gave me a scripture. And at that point in time, I knew that the doors were going to open soon. And they did, you know, three years later. And I'm very thankful for that because I needed that time there. But I, I must profess, Pastor, that I missed that time with the Lord. I was closer to the Lord while I was in prison than I am today. And the reason I say that is because the hustle bustle of being a husband and a homemaker, um, doing other things that, you know, with family and so on, you don't have those distractions, per se, when you're in prison. So consequently, your time is devoted strictly to him. You yeah, know, there's a kind of structure yes. that you have. You're like in a monastery, in a way. I mean, it's not a nice monastery, yeah. but, uh, but it is a place where there's a lot of structure that allows you to, 
structure your time in a way that uh, enables you to read the word, to pray. To, it's, your life is simplified to the extreme. Yes. And I think it's sometimes when we come out into the real world, and I, and I see that happening sometimes, you know, when people um, enter, uh, they, they, they come from a world of drugs or of crime or whatever. They enter into the, the Christian life and into the normality, you know, the, the daily uh, routines of life and the challenges that come and the complexity then that comes with, with living a normal life. And that's where sometimes they have difficulty. Yes. Because, uh, you know, the, the Christian life is supposed to be lived in the, all the hustle and bustle, the confusion and the challenges and the stresses and the complexities of daily life and the boredom as well. Mm-hmm. And sometimes people don't know how to deal with that. They, yes. they want either the excitement of, uh, you know, a life of crime or of homelessness or whatever because they, it has its excitements. Um, uh, or, you know, sometimes prison can be that place where they get the structure. They get to lift weights. They mm-hmm. get up early. They go to bed at a certain hour. And sometimes they crave that. And sometimes I think people, they commit crimes on purpose to get back into that structure mm-hmm. that prison provides. Somehow. But then when you're living life like you are now as a normal man, you're returning, mm-hmm. I, I hear what you're saying. And I, I'm saying that for the purpose, of, for the benefit of those of us who are, you know, going through those transitions mm-hmm. and ret- returning to a normal life. That uh, Normal life has its own challenges as well. Yes. So we need and, to learn how to and, live. And, and, and I went through, and I went through a, a stick of shock because uh, going in in 95, even, even though I thought I had some knowledge of computers working at a computer company, uh, the technology had changed so incredibly. I mean, I didn't realize, you know, the advances of, of the cell phone um, and the things that the grocery stores, walking down a grocery store, you can get lost today compared to what we had back in the 90s. Um, and the prices of everything had gone four or five times higher than what it was before I went away. All of that was a huge educational process to be able to, you know, get through all of that. Winding down, um, who is uh, Richard Mangoni today? What has the Lord done in your life? You, you go into a transition house, uh, stage, and uh, here you are, a uh, redeemed man, a man who loves the Lord, who's doing amazing things. How is the Lord working in your life today? Well, as the scriptures talk about with the locusts and the canker worm and everything, eats everything away. When, when I came out, um, I knew the Lord would provide for me, and he ended up uh, you know, getting me a church. And uh, I ended up uh, going on Christian Mingle, and, and the Lord blessed me with a beautiful wife. Um, so I By knew the way, she's right here. Yeah, Stand, uh, Rosanna. This is, a, this is a Richard's wife. There's a, story, there's a story there. She loves the Lord. It's a woman who's serving God. She happens to be Latina, which is interesting. You have this Italian, Mangoni, yeah. with a Dominican woman. Praise the Lord for that combination. You know, Amen. God is into miracles of reconciliation even there. But um, that's, but he, that's part of the whole stage. And tell me about your wife. You, you, you widowed while you were yes. when in I was uh, in, prison. Yes. When I was in prison, uh, my wife Mary passed away of cancer. Uh, she was a smoker, and that happened in 2011. And I was released in, in 2013. Unfortunately, Thanks. because of my past life, uh, I couldn't go to her funeral or to my uh, mom's funeral because of my previous flight. Yeah. And that, was, uh, that was difficult being in prison, but the staff was very good to me and gave me plenty of uh, you know, comfort. And that was a blessing, uh, being around you know, people that uh, really cared enough about you to help. Well, reconciliation is a big piece. I mean, I, I know we have brothers and sisters here in the congregation who, you know, in, in their previous life, uh, they have alienated uh, 
children and wives and uh, relatives because of all the mistakes that have been made. And we always tell them that God is into miracles of Amen. reconciliation. And we see many times how God Amen. has, uh, you know, re reestablished uh, uh, relationships with children who are alienated and uh, wives and so on and so mm. forth. And you, you, you have experienced some of that yourself. Yeah. And one thing I will say that anyone that knows someone in prison, doing prison time is easy compared to the families that you leave behind. Mm. Your, your, your husband or your wife that you leave behind and you are the prime breadwinner. Having them at home be able to fend for themselves is very difficult. Yeah. And a lot of times men in prison and women will end up having pity parties where they feel, what was me? Nobody cares about me. Here I am away. But yet you've got to put your shoe on the other foot and say, my wife can't get work. Now she has to be on some form of welfare program. Yeah. And we, we leave a lot of rubble behind. Mm -hmm. And that's the selfishness that we've got to be very careful about uh, yeah when we're in those positions. But thank God he's into recycling as well. No? Amen. I mean, he, he takes a lot of that garbage and exactly. he recycles it and turns it into gold as well. Amen. And, uh, and it's a blessing. So today, um, I work for the, uh, as a volunteer for the U.S. Uh, probation department. And uh, my job is usually once a quarter, every couple of months, I'll go into the courthouse and they'll have an audience of maybe you know, 25 to 50 inmates getting ready to go into prison. And, and my... My position is, is to try to get them to a point where their mind is ready to enter into prison. What to bring, what not to bring, what to do while you're in, like what coach, not to like do. A prison coach. Exactly, exactly. And, and from there, uh, doors have opened. The laws allowed me to go into uh, uh, security prisons uh, up in Berlin, uh, New Hampshire. I went in with U.S. probation to speak to the men getting ready to come out on what the halfway house program is like, because I was in a halfway house for a year when I was released. And I can speak to them about, you know, jobs and opportunities that, uh, that are on the street today. Because many of these men have been away for a long time. They need the coaching, as you say, to, to help them. And I've been in uh, a state facility up in upstate New York that I've gone up and had Bible study with some of the men. And I think that's where the Lord is leading me to help these people that are behind bars, but yet freer than many of the people that are on this side of the fence. Uh, it's amazing in how God is move, moving within the prison systems. Well, it's, it's beautiful that uh, this man who um, was in the prison system for such a long time could have been totally deformed through that experience has come out as a servant of Christ, wholly reconfigured with a blessed uh, life as a man, uh, society. And you are use, you're using your gifts and your experiences now to bless others. I know you have a ministry called, I think it's Bezalel. Yeah, Bezalel Prison Bezalel Ministries. Prison Ministries, and yeah. you are doing amazing things. You told me something that really moved me was that um, uh, you, you have broken even in terms of the publishing of the book, and now you have decided that whatever income is derived from the sales of your books will go into prison ministry supporting people who are in prison ministry. Yes, that's there. exactly that's, right. That's Amen. amazing. We celebrate that. God the, um, use you mightily through that whole process. It's, it's, it's God's words, I believe, that he gave me to write in the transparency that we as Christians need to have. And uh, I felt at that point in time, the Lord was tugging on my heart and Rosanna's heart to give that money back to where it belongs and to help those uh, that are supporting prison ministry. Yeah. Praise God. Well, Richard, you're, you're an inspiration to all of us. Thank you, Pastor. And uh, you are the embodiment of this God who is a forgiving, merciful, compassionate God. Mm, praise God. You can God use for that. whatever situation people might go through and turn it into something beautiful, into a source of grace 
for others. Amen. And, uh, we pray for a long life and uh, fruitful ministry. Amen. And thank for you. many, many years of uh, giving back Amen. to Praise society. God. Thank you. We thank you for being here. What a blessing you have been. Thank you. Just give my thank hand. you. Appreciate thank it. Thank you. And